You gotta admit that was a quick one, right?
Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements, if we may. Uh, first three, first four, uh, we know that pretty much by heart. Uh, item number five, communion service will be held after a 10-minute break following the morning worship. And there will be a dinner. I brought salad. 
Oh. We had a little uh, problem with our our main course this morning. I got a call from the uh, food mart up there in Metamora. The lady said, I'm sorry to inform you that we were down to one person in our deli, and she got rushed to the hospital this morning with a bur burst appendix. So we have no one to make your chicken. So being the industrious fellow that I am, I started making phone calls and finally was able to get a hold of Walmart where they only make it in 40 and 96 piece quantities. Guess which one I picked. So I expect that we'll all have chicken to take home tonight. So we will be doing a special offering uh, for our missionary, the Lees. Uh, they are supporting the Ukraine families fleeing persecution by Russia. This isn't just persecution. This is flat-out war. Uh, Russia is on, I think, a, a scorched-earth policy right now. They're bogged down, and they're having difficulties, and they're shooting at everything that moves, anything that's not moving, and uh, they're just being very detestable people. So... In all of this, I was able to watch uh, a segment yesterday morning on the TV uh, of one of the bus terminals there where people were just scurrying back and forth, some sprinting, some walking fast, dragging children, almost in a panic. But they were almost subdued also, trying to get to where they were going. And in all the commotion, a young woman walked over to a piano and sat down and began to play the piano. The song was, What a Wonderful World. Now, I don't know if that would have been my choice right off the play, but this woman sat there for several minutes and played through it and just kept on playing through all the turbulence. Now, either she's a, an eternal optimist or I would like to think a a Christian woman that knows that God is guiding everybody's steps and it is his providence that is uh, carrying the day. So let's be mindful of that as we go home tonight and sit in relative comfort and peace, watch TV, have a snack, and at least for the time, not be worried about somebody bombing our house into oblivion. Are there any other uh, messages or anything we need to know about? Anybody have anything? Uh, I'd ask also uh, for a prayer for the woman that was taken to McLaren Hospital for the, the burst appendix. I don't know her name, but uh, just keep her in the back of your mind. Adam? Erica, anytime. Do they know what it's going to be? or they just, It's a boy. Okay. All right. Our scripture for meditation today is taken from the book of Psalm 55. That's going to be page 892 in your pew Bible.
Would you join us by standing as we begin our service in prayer? Adam, may I prevail on you to lead us? Good morning. Will you, will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 304, 304 in the red?
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, and that'll be page 53. And as you come to your passage, please stand with us. Genesis 32, 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Everlasting blessing to this holy inspired word. We take your red hymnal again and turn to number 619, 619 in the red.
our scripture this morning is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. Last Lord's Day, we watched as Jacob prepared to meet his estranged brother Esau. God assigned Jacob an angelic manifestation of supernatural beings to protect him in his endeavor. Not a dream, not a vision, but an actual physical manifestation of an angelic being. God used various means of revealing himself to his Old Testament people, including audible voices, dreams, visions, visions would be day visions, and then actual appearances of heavenly dignitaries, each more definitive than the previous. Jacob announced his coming arrival to Esau, and the response was that Esau came out to meet him with 400 men. Wow. That was disconcerting to say the least. You're going to go visit your relatives? Are you going to take all your extended relatives with you? This didn't look too good. 400, man, goodness. Well, Jacob prayed for God to save him from any evil intentions that his brother might have against him. This was a prayer of affirmation. He says, in effect, that God had been with him all along, so, <laughs> God, I need you now, too. Don't. This is not a time to desert me. My brother's coming out. Who knows what he's got on his mind? So he had a prayer of affirmation. And also, it was a prayer of supplication as he asked God to save him from Esau's rage. He knew... <laughs> The evil he had done towards his brother. And he can only think. Esau's coming out to trounce me. This is not going to be good. To pacify Esau's former anger. And promise vengeance on Jacob. For stealing the blessing and the birthright. That he was entitled to. Jacob sent on ahead of him. Herds of livestock. I counted it up. Total of more than 550 animals. Now, folks, that's not a drop in the bucket when it comes to wealth. It would be back in this day even to have that kind of livestock at your disposal. A wealthy, He was a wealthy man. And that wasn't all they owned. That's just, that's just the gift that he gave towards Esau. We drew out then the appropriate lessons. <clears throat> all God's methods reveal himself to mankind. To be saved for the best is coming. Jesus Christ, his very own son, is the best gift. We learn that God's guardian angels work for the benefit of God's chosen people. We actually have scriptures that say that. That's what their job is. If you didn't know that, that's what angels do. They watch over us, God's people. 
Today's study explains God's encounter of Jacob. There's an encounter that's going to take place. As we come to our study, let's ask the Lord to be with us. We thank you, Lord, for your word, these Old Testament histories. Marvelous to see how you cared for your people. We are your people today. We are also cared for by you. We don't receive visions and things of that nature anymore because the Bible is complete. The great word of God has come. The living word of God, Jesus. And once the greatest has come, what else is there to say? He says it all. And that's why we are incumbent upon us to be children of the book. Studying the scriptures. Learning to draw close to Christ. And learning of God through Christ. We'll praise you for it. Help us as we come today in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text before us deals with God's encounter of Jacob. In order for this to accomplish in a spiritual way, Jacob is isolated and alone. When last we saw Jacob, he we learned that upon hearing the news that Esau was en route to meet him, with an entourage of 400 men, wow. In fear, Jacob divided his family into two groups, and he tried to appease Esau with a very expensive gift of over 500 head of livestock. And his reasoning, he tells us what his reasoning is. Look at verse 20. He thought, I will pacify him with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. That is, perhaps he will receive me in peace instead of killing me. I think this was all good thinking. It was all good actions on his part. But it was not satisfying enough. And so that night, verse 22, Jacob, fraught with fear, took his entire family and relocated them across the ford of the Jabbok stream. Verse 22. Tributary, about 20 miles north of the Dead Sea, which flowed westward into the Jordan River. He also relocated all of his possessions across the Jabbok, tents, household goods, all of his livestock, his servants to manage the livestock, and the result being, verse 24, so Jacob was left alone. I mean, if there's trouble that's going to come upon his family, he wants to protect his family as best he knows how. And he's not worried about himself. He's worried about his family. He stays behind, sends his family away. Sounds like any reasonable uh brother or father or husband would do in times of trouble. There are times when having a lot of family and friends around 
uh, it's not conducive to spiritual awareness and growth. I mean, we become busy with the hustle and bustle of life. We're distracted by decisions that have to be made, problems that have to be solved, people whose needs and cares have to be addressed. And these things can become like an invisible but real wall blocking out any and all spiritual deficiencies in us which actually demand a more immediate resolution. Busyness, even legitimate enterprises, can and do crowd out God's voice, which gets lost in the din of everyday banter among friends and family and business associates. I'm sure you've experienced it. Have we not had people say, or maybe we've said it ourselves, you know, I, I just need some time alone to think. It's our way of saying, <laughs> life is just too busy. I mean, everything is happening around me in lightning-like speed. I cannot concentrate. I can't have a clear-headed thought. I need some space. That's what we say in our day. I need some space. In Jacob's case, it does not appear that he was trying to make an alone time for himself, but rather his being alone was the result of seeing to it that all of his family, his livestock, his servants were safe on the distant shore of the Jabbok tributary, away from Esau's immediate grasp. I think Providence was playing a major role in all of this. God was using Jacob's precautionary personality to isolate him from the mechanics of caring for his family and servants and to get him alone. To get him alone. Why would one God want to get Jacob alone? Well, to have some quality time with this guy who's got his own sin problems. There in the wilderness we read about God wrestling with Jacob. Verse 24 states, A man wrestled with him, with Jacob, till daybreak. Who's this man? Well, we're not to believe that some guy was waiting among the trees along the brook and then when Jacob showed up, he jumped out of the bushes and attacked Jacob in a wrestling match. That's absurd. No, this man, so named, was none other than God himself. Verse 30 tells us the conclusion, saying that Jacob named the place where this occurred Peniel. Peniel. Peniel means the face of God. And he said, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. So here was another of those theophanies, those God appearances, about which we talked the other week in which God communicated to the Old Testament saints. One of the ways he did this. 
being better, of course, and more direct over voice or dreams or visions. Notice, too, the way in which the Scripture words this encounter. It says, A man wrestled with him, Jacob, till daybreak. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with the man, though in the context that demonstrates a two-man struggle. The wording here is to show who started the wrestling match. It was not Jacob who initiated this struggle. It was God. I think had God left Jacob alone, there would have been no confrontation. Jacob would have continued on his path of deceiving and being deceived, which is the definition of his name. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. And it's notable that once Jacob was encountered by God in this match, Jacob put everything he had into it to come out on top. God had a hold on Jacob, but Jacob also had a hold on God. And it was a pretty tenacious hold. So much so that God acquiesced to Jacob's stranglehold. And we read, God saw that he could not overpower him, Jacob, verse 25. So he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that, here's the statement of the result, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. I looked up the word wrenched in Hebrew. Yaakov. His hip was disjointed. It was thrown out of alignment. We're fortunate to have a doctor of chiropractic in our uh, assembly. So I called Dr. Ed this week. About this. And he said that there are powerful ligaments responsible for holding the ball joint of the leg bone tightly into the socket, which is known as the acetabulum, I think. So you, you all know that at the top of the femur, the, the thigh bone, there's a ball. That's so it can do that. It can go in various directions. Well, how's it going to stay in the socket? Strong ligaments are attached to that bone structure and that bone holds it into the socket so it doesn't snap out. Gives tremendous stability to the joint. For that reason, the hip joint is normally very sturdy because of the fit between the femoral head and that socket, as well as strong ligaments and muscles that are at that joint. All the various components of the hip mechanism assist in the ability of the joint. So if you damage any single component, it can negatively affect the range of motion and the ability to bear weight on that joint. And I got that information from a website called Bone Smart. 
We've all seen films depicting an actor representing a dislocated shoulder. Also has a ball in a socket, only it's up here. But with some force and a quick snap of the arm, a doctor can reset a dislocated shoulder, though it's painful to do it. But once it's done, you're back to healing. Not so with the hip bone. Dr. Ed informed me that due to the strong and powerful ligaments which hold the ball of the femur bone into the pelvic socket, it would be nigh to impossible for a manipulative procedure to restore proper alignment so that the person would have his or her walkability restored. Now there's new things happening all the time and new procedures, but generally. And again, the website already noted, confirmed that a hip dislocation usually requires orthopedic surgery to restore it. Well, that's precisely what we find in our text. When the ordeal was over, the morning dawn had arrived. We are told, verse 31, the sun rose above all, above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Huh. Yeah, with no orthopedic surgeon to correct the dislocation, it's likely that Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. And the Israelites ceased eating the tendon attached to the socket of the hip. So they had an animal diet. And verse 32 gives the reason. Because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Makes sense. The tendons hold the thigh bone, the femur, into the socket. But that's where the damage was in those tendons and ligaments. So Jacob is in this struggle and he refuses to let go of God. As the new day was dawning, God demanded of Jacob to let him go, to which Jacob replied, I will not let you go. Unless you bless me, verse 26. The men then asked Jacob his name. And Jacob replied, My name is Deceiver, (laughs) Jacob. That's who I am. To which God replied, Your name will no longer be Deceiver, But Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. So it gets a name change. What does Israel mean? Well, let me break it down for you. Yisra. Yisra, the first part of the word Israel. Yisra, last part of the word, El. El. Yisra, to prevail. El, 
one of the words in Hebrew for God. Elohim, El for short. The translation can mean that Jacob prevailed or that God prevailed. So you ask, well, which was it? And the answer is both. Jacob wrestled with God all night, refused to let go of God because he needed to be reconciled to God even though the dawn was breaking. And God refused to bless Jacob until he willingly admitted that his name was deceiver from which he needed to repent. Jacob then asked the man, please tell me your name. But he received a mild rebuke. Why do you ask my name? One other person posed that question to God in the scripture. His name was Manoah, father of Samson. He asked the angel of the Lord his name. And God answered very similarly as in our text. Why do you ask my name, said Manoah. And then he answered, my name it is beyond understanding. What? Yes, that's my name. Beyond understanding. Judges 13, verse 18. The Hebrew is wonderful. The name is wonderful. It's a title given to the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 9, verse 6 and following, in which Isaiah predicts, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful, Mighty God. The Hebrew is Pala, P-A-L-A. Beyond comprehension. That's what its name is. Wonderful. And if you break it down... It means to be full of wonder. God is saying to Jacob, as he said to Manoah, you know there are things about God which form mysteries that are incomprehensible. You cannot possibly know all there is to know about God. Which, as you recall, was the lie, the hook, that snagged Eve and drew her into disobedience. Let me read it for you. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. Genesis 3 verse 5. And verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Adam and Eve's offspring have been 
sinning in this way ever since. Ever since. God is incomprehensible, but sinful man keeps testing the premise, believing that nothing is incomprehensible to our intellect. If we just apply ourselves a bit harder, we can discern and know all things, including God. It should be noted that even with the giving of the Bible, which contains the self-revelations of God, by God, so we know it's truth, even the best of Bible students, the best of theologians, can never plummet the depth the degree of who and what God is. Nor can we. Moses wrote it this way. Moses wrote, The secret things belong to God. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, the scriptures, they belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. In other words, we have and we can know all that God has revealed, but let us not think that he has revealed all. Which is to say, there will always be secret things. There will always be mystery to God. And those wise respect that limitation to human knowledge. Jacob asked an inappropriate question of the God whose name is incomprehensible but God blessed him in spite of his impertinence mankind today still arrogant thinks he can know anything there is (laughs) if there is a God we can figure it out and we can know anything there is to know about that God And they use their intellect to set up their own definitions of who and what is God, how he functions, how he relates to us. And they always guess wrong. Because they don't go to the book where God has revealed himself to us. How simple is that? Well, what spiritual truths of God's encounter with Jacob do we understand from this text? Number one, spiritual battles with God come down to a personal encounter alone, which God himself initiates. In Jacob's case, God literally arranged providence so that Jacob, in fear, removed everything he held dear in a distant place across the Jabbok tributary, with the result that he ended up being isolated. God removed all of Jacob's temporal support, 
his wives, his children, his wealth, his servants, all his possessions, verse 24. So, here's the consequence. Jacob was left alone. Did you know that salvation is that personal? It is. Salvation is not a group thing. It's a by yourself all alone thing. And so it is appropriate for God, as it were, to kick away all the props that men use to hold themselves up before God in pride. Proud men have trouble admitting that they are Jacob's. That they are deceivers. God knows our condition, but he asks our name to see if we will admit our condition. And it's so personal that God isolates us. He gets us alone in thought, if not physically, so that we can expose our, he can expose our great need of his mercy and his blessings. Too often pride wins out as we try to present ourselves in as favorable a light as we can muster. But the scripture declares, but he, God, gives us more grace. And that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4 verse 6. One day, Jesus confronted the pride of his own disciples, head on, head on. What did he do? Matthew 18, verse 2 and following. He called a little child. Hey, come over here, little child. And he stood him among the disciples. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, wait a minute. That's, that's, that's going a little far, isn't it? What attribute of a little child must these disciples emulate? We don't have to guess. Jesus goes on. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is an attack on the sin of pride. Oh, where have we seen that before? The carnal sin of all men is pride. The sin that ruined the holy perfection of Adam and Eve was pride. The sin that made the devil out of Lucifer, the morning star of heaven, was pride. I can be my own God. I don't need... Jehovah. It is also the sin which sets you and I on a collision course with God unless we repent. Let me read it for you. Book of Isaiah. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled. The pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. 
for all that exalted, and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low, the pride of man humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee to caves and to rocks and holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. In that day men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags over the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Isaiah 27, or chapter 2 rather, verse 17 through 22. Yeah, what is man? He's, he's got a breath there. <laughs> Not a very strong one. He's got one more inhale, exhale. He's got a breath there. And yet he's so proud of who and what he is. Brethren, it is a mercy of God to isolate us. To get us alone so that we can heed God's truth given through the psalmist. Be still, says the psalmist, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46, verse 10 and 11. When a person sees his or her need of God's salvation, they must latch on to God and not let go. Their pride has to go. But the tenaciousness that is born from their need and their own inabilities, that hangs in there tough. There is such a thing as a day of salvation. A day of salvation. A moment in time in your life when God singles you out and brings overpowering conviction of sin in your life and exposure of how far from God you are, how desperate is your plight, so long as you deny this and try to justify yourself before God. You can't get away from it. You're just flesh and blood. You're not God. You think you're God, but you're not. And it's just that, a day, which here's today and gone tomorrow. So it's foolish to dismiss it or to put it off. In the day of Noah's flood, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached the gospel to that generation for 120 years before the flood came. And God warned those people, saying, My spirit will not contend with man forever. Yeah, they didn't want to hear. Yeah. My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. Don't you know that about man? You're just mortal. 
You're just flesh and blood. And flesh and blood can die, and it can rot, and it can become dirt. The Spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Genesis 6, 3. And Moses was saying, you know, there's a limit to the patience of God. You don't have all of life to get right. In fact, I doubt seriously whether you or I have 120 years to get right with God. You don't hear that very often, person living that long. But be it to 120 years or only a few years, the writer of Hebrews makes the point, which is this. He says, the Holy Spirit says, today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. You got today. That's what you got is what he's saying. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 3 verse 7 and following. You don't have forever. You don't have tomorrow. Unless God gives it. What you have is today. And then we are reminded in this text, don't give up on God till you prevail. Jesus told the account of the persistent widow who presumed upon an unrighteous judge. Then Jesus said to the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Let me say that phrase again. Get it soaked in your brain Always pray and don't give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Give me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I don't care for men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. She's driving me nuts is the way we would put it. Every Monday morning, there she is on the doorstep again. Even though I don't fear God and I don't care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice. So that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. 
And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, verse 1 and following. You say you prayed once and you asked God to save you. Eh, nothing happened. Nothing happened. So you stopped asking. You gave up on praying. Why didn't God respond in the way you anticipated? Could it be that there was something missing in your petition? Have you forsaken all pretense? All attempts to try to snow God with how wonderful you are? God put it to Jacob. What's your name? May I say, this is the moment of truth for Jacob. God said to Jacob, What's your name? You have to understand, God doesn't ask questions because he's ignorant of the answers. No. He asks us questions to see if we will respond truthfully. Would Jacob respond to God with the whole truth, or would he tell a half-truth, which is a whole lie? Thankfully, and to his credit, he answered, What's my name? Deceiver is my name. (laughs) And lying to and tricking people is my game. And I have always been this way since my birth. The testimony of Hosea, the prophet, clarifies what happened here with Jacob. Let me read it for you. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel. He prevailed. He wept. He sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Hosea chapter 12, verse 3 through 6. 
Jacob's wrestling match with God was spiritual. It wasn't physical. One does not wrestle physically with tears and with prayers, as Hosea explains. Likely coming to repentance and faith for you involved both tears and prayers. But that's the portal to forgiveness. David put it this way in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Grief over sin leading to repentance brings about salvation. When I worked for the bus company in Lapeer, we would have a banquet, a yearly banquet. They had enough good common sense to know that if you're going to gather hundreds of people, somebody ought to offer prayer for the food, right? Which they did. They didn't ask me to pray. But they asked certain dignitaries in the community to pray. What a revelation. To hear them pray. Oh God, we thank you that we are not like other men. Right out of the scriptures almost. Thank you for this food, but we planted it and we bought it and we prepared it. You'll find that in the scriptures, by the way. That kind of arrogance. God, you just sit over there in your little on your little stool while we take credit for who and what we are. No grief over sin. No repentance. But just a claiming that I'm a self-made man. We did it. Then lastly, let us learn it's better to forfeit one body part than to have the whole body cast into hell. See, what are you talking about? God struck Jacob in the tendon that maintained his balance and his ability to walk unencumbered, and it caused him to become lame from that point on for the rest of his life. Wow. Yes, it must have been painful, but it was a painful reminder that God's forgiveness insists upon a changed life, a change of behavior, in his case, no longer being a deceiver and a liar. 
with every limp, with every necessity to watch his step, every movement of his being. Jacob was made conscious that he was no longer Jacob, the deceiver, but he was Israel. The man with whom God strove, and he with God until righteousness was born in his heart. What I am saying is that believing in God for salvation is not the be-all, it is not the end-all of salvation. It's but the beginning of a walk with God which involves in this life persecution, pain, anguish, uncertainty, and at times doubts and fears and wondering what in the world is God doing? wonder what's going on on over in Europe unfortunately many people would opt for retaining their present existence to keep their sinful body life intact rather than repent and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord in peace Jesus taught if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 5, verse 29. Now, he was not referring to mutilating the body physically. But as in all sinful pursuits, dealing with the eye gate through which the lusts of the flesh, the greed of our heart is emboldened, to forfeit our salvation for lesser things of a momentary pleasure. Boy, what kind of a choice is that? A little pleasure in this life and an eternity in hell for the rest of your life. Ooh. Finally, Jacob's new name confirms for us that in salvation God grants us a new nature which truly sees God Jacob put it this way verse 29 he says I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared we could put it this way his life was spared when he saw God as He truly is. Till that point, Jacob was blinded by his sin. And so are we. Paul's testimony is also important to take to heart. I too was convinced, says Paul, that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Acts 26, verse 9 and 5. What changed? How did Saul the executioner become Paul the gospel evangelist? 
He tells us, God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Galatians 1, verse 15 and 16. Like Jacob in our text, whose name was changed to Israel, Saul's name was changed to Paul, and he became the Apostle of Christ with the message of change that comes with conversion. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, he writes, The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. I'm still reading scripture. For Isaiah says, Lord, (laughs) who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 12 and following. John writes in the last book of the Bible. His observation concerning heaven. Revelation 17 verse 8. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished. Why? Revelation 21 verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, heaven. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, Jacob. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He might have been born a deceiver. But he was reborn. Israel. The prince of God. Have you been reborn? If not, you're in a bad way. You're not safe from God. Paul writes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Some dumb idol, yeah. You don't have to worry about them. They can't hurt you. They can't help you. But you fall into the hands of the living God, you are in trouble if you're not reconciled to God through Christ. That's why Christ came. He's paying the debt, the sin debt, of his own people. So that God can be merciful to you. Oh, Jesus took my payment so God can be merciful to me. If I trust Christ which I pray you will do. Father, thank you for your word. Praise you for it. There's so much of Jacob in us. Deceiver. 
The psalmist put it this way, all men are liars. We read that and we say, oh, now wait a minute. I pride myself in telling the truth. Yeah, but you don't know the truth. We struggle to know it. Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the way. No one comes before the Father except through me. Lord, help us to grasp that. There's not enough truth. There's not any holiness in us. It's all in Jesus, your beloved Son. It's not in mankind, period. It's in God. And that's why it's going to take God to make us whole. Thank you for your word. Praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 432. 432 in the hymnal. Okay. Six three one Trinity. <laughs> we stand when you find the hymn six three one.
Okay, we'll take a 10-minute break. Regather when you hear the music for our communion service.